But uh, anyways, how many people have a treadmill at home or maybe an elliptical or an exercise bike and it's covered with clothes right now or has an article of clothing? Wow. You, one person. We have one person who's not lying here today. That's great. So uh, I bought an exercise bike like two years ago or so, and I said to my wife, listen, I, I got this foolproof plan. I'm going to buy this exercise bike, and it's small enough I could fit it right next to my bed. And that way, in the morning, I wake up, I'll walk by it, and when I go to bed at night, I'll have to walk by it. And there's no way I could feel that shame and not get on that bike. But as you can see, I did exactly that. Every day, I would walk by it, and I'd stub my toe on it. I would put my clothes on it. You know, the ones that they're not quite dirty enough to put in the laundry, but they're not clean enough to hang up. So I'd put them there. But um, So I'm with you, Jay. I'm one of those people. But I had the smarts to put it in the basement now so I don't have to look at it every day and feel the shame. So, But that's what happens, isn't it? We buy something, and because we believe that it's going to be useful, right? Like I bought an exercise bike because I believed it was going to motivate me to get physically active. I believed it would help me like shed a few pounds, maybe some inches. I had the belief that it would get me to where I wanted to be. But the problem was I didn't quite use it. That belief, it's still there, but I haven't used the exercise bike. And many people, if you look on Facebook, on the marketplace, there's just a mass amount of consumer-grade fitness equipment that people are selling. And there's just amazing deals. Like, if you like the deal like I do, you can find treadmills on there for like 100 bucks. Ones that brand new were probably $1,200, $1,500. And that's because these people... They believed that they were getting something that would help them achieve their fitness goals, but then they never actually did anything about it. And then they decided to sell it, but they didn't sell it because they stopped believing. Or like, I still believe that exercise bike will get me active and it will, would help me lose some weight, but I'm not doing anything about it. Like the belief is still there. It just because I'm selling it doesn't mean I don't believe any longer. And so when you buy an exercise bike, you believe it. So there's belief on both sides. But a person who actually rides a bike or they hit the treadmill or the gym, there's a big difference between a person like that and maybe myself who never turned their belief into doing. If you take two people, I assume all of us here actually would agree on some core beliefs when it comes to fitness, when it comes to nutrition, healthy eating. I think we would all agree that, you know, Donuts and cookies aren't a good breakfast to have every day. I mean, I think it's a great breakfast, but it's not nutritionally, nutritionally beneficial, right? Like we could all agree on some core beliefs in that, but it's the people that actually put that into practice because believing doesn't make a difference when you really boil it down because people don't always act on what they believe. You can say you believe one thing and then do something completely different. You could show up to the gym and have a horrible attitude, hate the fact you're there, look at yourself in the mirror, think it's not doing any good, but it's actually doing good because you're putting the work in. Belief doesn't really make a difference. Doing is what actually makes a difference. It's taking that belief and moving it to the next step. Here's another kind of thing that's beneficial about exercise if you're into that sort of thing. I know you didn't expect to get health tips from a short, stocky guy this morning when you got up, but if you have someone who's going to meet you at the gym, right? Like someone there to keep you accountable. If you know, like if I don't show up to the gym, Jim's going to be real mad that I didn't show up and he's got to be there all by himself. And so he's going to be upset and then he won't go anymore. And then we're both losers, right? We both don't show up because having a partner makes all the difference because accountability 
matters. Having someone there to push you along, to kind of hold you accountable, to be there. Because I'm my own worst enemy, right? Like when I, my alarm goes off every morning at 4.45 and uh, I'm at work for six o'clock, but it goes off at 4.45, but I hit the snooze button. And then it goes off again and I hit the snooze button. And it goes off again and I hit the snooze button like four or five times because Apple doesn't give you a full 10 minutes. They only give you eight for some horrible reason. And so I just snooze because I'm my own worst enemy, right? Like if I had someone to hold me accountable that would just slap me and say, get out of bed, right? Like I would get out of bed, but I don't have that person there because my wife's always up before I am even. But we have a partner, then that makes all the difference because accountability is what helps you turn that belief into actually doing something with it. Now, we're going to apply this to something else because fitness is not my area of expertise by any means. But if you're a Christian here today, I think this applies to us as well. It can apply to lots of different areas. But if you're a Christian, we all know that not every Christian right, acts on what they believe. We all have a core belief, and I think we could all agree that, you know, the New Testament, we agree with Jesus' teachings. We agree with what's in there. I think we all can agree that Jesus is who he said he is. But believers don't always act on what they believe, do they? It's, it's really part of the reason why so many people dislike Christians in the world. Because we believe the New Testament, we'll splash it all over Facebook, and we'll talk about it, but, but we don't really forgive others the way that Jesus commands us to forgive. But, you know, we, we believe in all this. We believe in generous and being generous and generosity, but we don't actually give selflessly. We don't love people unconditionally. We're not generous with our time, let alone our resources or our finances, we don't put others first, and we could go on and on and on with this. And that's why sometimes the world has such a problem with us, because we're first in line to tell you what we believe, but we're usually last in line to actually do the things that we believe. And that's why at Journey, you'll hear Jim talk a lot about not becoming a believer, and you know we, we're trying to raise up believers in Jesus. We talk about people being followers of Jesus someone who follows Jesus' teachings. And there's a big difference between believing and following because one is action. One involves doing something about it. Because we believe that when you move from belief to actually doing, that your life will get better. We believe that your life is better that way. And we believe that you'll be better at life as a result of following Jesus, turning your belief into action. And so following, uh, you know, Jesus, we think is a team sport because you can't follow Jesus in isolation. It just doesn't work. It's just not something that happens. You can't just follow Jesus and be alone in the dark, off in your own room, doing your own thing. It's a team sport. It's an us thing. It's all of us. It's us together doing it. And so the Apostle Paul, he knew this. If you don't know who the Apostle Paul is, maybe this is your first time with us, but he was a man who was hell-bent on stopping the church. Like he did anything he could to stop it. He wanted to stomp out Christians. He arrested them. He would do whatever he could. But then one day his life totally changed. He did a complete 180 and he started planting churches. He encountered Jesus in a way that was unexplainable to him. And he turned his life to planting churches instead of trying to destroy them. And so Paul, he knew that you need other people. 
He knew you couldn't do this alone. And so if you take all the letters that Paul wrote that make up the majority of the New Testament and, and you kind of like highlight a lot of the high-level themes throughout all of those letters, I think you would come up with Paul's one another list. That's what we're going to name it. And it looks something like this. Paul says, if you are a follower of Jesus, not just a believer, but a follower of Jesus, you'll look something like this. You'll forgive one another, accept one another, care for one another, encourage one another. Do you see a theme here? Submit to one another, restore one another, carry one another's burdens and bear with one another. Even when it's difficult, you can't do these things on your own. You can't be a solo Christian and do all of these things and live the life that Jesus intended for you. Some of you probably grew up in, in a church where you grew up there and, and you saw that being a Christian means you're generally a nice person, at least you are on Sundays, and you go to church once in a while, you put some money in the offering bucket or the little pan that goes by, the nice gold one with the felt bottom, and you, you, know, you read the Bible once in a while maybe on Easter, and you pray sometimes you know, when like, you really, really need it when God's like going to do something miraculous for you. And so you kind of grew up that way. But Paul says that's, that's a solo Christian. Like that's, that's not what following Jesus is all about. That's a vertical relationship only. That's just you and God, and it leaves everybody else out of it. But Paul says it's not enough to believe it privately. You have to publicly live it out. Because belief on its own doesn't mean anything. It's useless, practically speaking. So you might make good decisions. You might pray and do those things. But God's like, there's so much more than that. There's so much more that I have intended for you. And if you read the New Testament at all, you'll quickly find that out. So we're going to look at the book of Hebrews, which is also in the New Testament. And we don't really know who the author of Hebrews is. Like there's some ideas that people think they know, but there's no like definitive author that we know of of the book of Hebrews. But it's really like a long sermon that they've kind of included in the New Testament. And he kind of gives a view of this vertical relationship that I've been talking about. But then he pivots to a more horizontal, kind of others-focused relationship. And that's what we're going to look at today. So he starts out, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, okay, fellow believers, followers of Jesus, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. So this in like the temple age back then, if you were part of our series 90, we talked all about kind of the covenants and the, the temple and what the, all that meant. But in the temple, there was this room called the Holy of Holies and no one was allowed to go in it because it's like where the presence of God was and only the priests could go in and it was like certain times of the year. They had to do this whole process to even be able to go in there and live. Because if they weren't prepared, that they could die instantly. And so it says to this, that, that we have confidence to enter the most holy place. We can go in there now by the blood of Jesus because of what he has done for us through his life, his death, and resurrection. Because we have that, we can now have full access to God's presence. Like That's huge. That's huge. And so we have this. And he goes on, he says, by a new and living way okay, that's been opened for us. Okay. The old way was if you were not right with God, if you sinned or you did something, then you had to make it right. And the way you did that was you killed an animal and you offered it up to God as a sacrifice to make peace. But that's the old way. But there's a new and a living way where death doesn't have to occur any longer. It's been opened for us through the curtain. So you used to have to go through a curtain to get to the Holy of Holies. So now you enter into being in God's presence 
that is through God, Christ's body that was broken for us. So we have this new way that was ushered in because of what Jesus has done for us, okay? And says, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. So this is still that vertical kind of, because we have full access to God, we don't need to kill animals anymore. Like we can enter that holy place now. We can encounter God all on our own without the need of a priest as the middle person between us. We can do all of that. So it says, let's draw near to God. But that's still kind of vertical, right? Like that's us and God only. He says, let's draw near to him with sincere and full assurance that faith brings. Let us hold unswervingly. Like how many people use that word this week? Not many of us. It's an odd word, but it means to kind of hold unwaveringly. Like do not let go of this. This is like, you need to hold firm to this. Hold firm to it. And I know that we have full access to God and all that's great, but this is what you really need to hold firm to and grasp onto this, okay? This is still that vertical relationship, but he starts to kind of pivot a little bit to others' focus. He says, focus in on this. He says, let us consider, okay? Consider this, explore this idea. Like give this credence. Like you need to look into this, pay special attention to this, Okay. Let us consider how we can spur one another on. There's Paul's words right there, one another. Okay, How can we spur one another on? It's not just a God and me thing. He said, how can we spur one another? This is separate from you and God. This is you and another. Let's consider this. And I love this because he's saying in your relationships with other believers, other followers of Jesus, he says, I want your relationships to stir each other up to push each other, to pull each other, to provoke, right? That's another word for spur, to kind of provoke, almost irritate each other. Be in each other's lives in such a way that you have access to them. And what I mean by that is I want you to be in your, each other's lives to the point where if something's going wrong in their life, that you have access to be there for them. You can speak truth into their life because you're with them. You're part of it. You have access to that friend. Or if you see that couple that's starting to struggle and their marriage kind of is hitting a bumpy patch, that you have access to that couple that you can speak truth into their marriage. You can be there for them. Or maybe your friend and their daughter or their son is getting into stuff that they quite don't know how to handle, that you have access to speak into their child's life because you do life together. That's like the whole point of the curriculum our kids do down the hall. It's called orange, and it's the melding of yellow and red where the parents and the church kind of come together where we have a place where there's other adults that are speaking truth into your kids' lives together with you, partnering with you. I want you to be in such a relationship, spurring each other on in such positive ways that when people look at you, they think, wow, like just look at the way that they love other people. Look at the way that that, that that thing that happened to them, they were able somehow to, to forgive and move past that. I don't know how they could do it, but somehow they're able to. I want you to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, towards action, towards putting that belief in motion. He says, I want you to be active in other people's lives. Live your lives together, aligned. And then he hits the nail on the head because so many times when that doesn't happen, 
when people aren't spurring each other on. It says, and not giving up on meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Even back then, this was happening, where stuff starts happening in your life, and troubles come, and you know, work life gets busy, or you get laid off, or something horrible happens. The doctor gives you bad news. You lose a job. Something happens, and then you stop meeting together. Like it kind of forces you to, to kind of draw back a little bit and you stop meeting together. And it was so prevalent back then that they felt that that was a habit that people were doing. And even now it's the same thing, right? At Journey, we believe that circles are better than rows because you're able to speak into one another's lives. Me and my wife, we went through kind of a year, uh, 2011 and 2012, that was just like the worst years of our lives. And as a result of that, we kind of pulled out of the church we were going to. We, uh, you know, relationships kind of were closed off. And we went through this period of time where we were watching messages online. We thought that was great. We could just do our own thing and start our own little home group. And as time went by, we found ourselves just being closed off, more closed off, and it didn't work the way that we thought it would. It's because you can't serve Jesus. You can't follow Jesus in isolation. It's a one another thing. Because this is what I believe, is that there's a divinely designed correlation between community and faithfulness. That when life gets too busy and you want to kind of pull away and you want to kind of focus in and wallow in your own self-pity, that you need to find community and let others in and give them access to you so that you can make it through those hard patches. And before Jesus was crucified, a couple nights before, he met with his, his uh, disciples in the, they said, in the upper room. Okay, so they're in this room and they're having dinner together and it's like the last supper and Jesus knows what's coming, but no one else really does. And he's telling them kind of what's to come for them and they don't really understand it because they think Jesus is like, you know, the one that's going to save everybody, but it's not the way that they think. And so he's telling them all this stuff and Philip, who's one of the guys there, he kind of interrupts Jesus. Jesus. He's like, Jesus, can you just like show us the Father already? Like we get all these cool miracles you're doing, but we just want to see God. Can you just do that for us? Like it's been a long time. Just, just do it. And then Jesus, he responds to them. He's like, guys, don't, don't you get it? Like you've heard me say this before, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like I'm as close as you're going to get to seeing God here on earth. Until you pass on, this is as close as you're going to get. I'm it. And you know the story. Jesus was arrested. He was crucified. He died. He rose again three days later. He commissioned the church, and then boom, he's off. Okay? And so we are to, to take that and say, well, okay, if Jesus is as close as we could get to God here on earth, but he's gone now, and then Paul refers to us, the body of believers, the people who are the followers of Jesus, as the body of Christ. Okay? So if Jesus was as close to God then, we are as close as the people out there are going to get to seeing God here on earth, that we are the manifestation of God here on earth. And so we are his body. And so we should be giving people the glimpse into what God is like when they encounter us, when they see us, when they meet us. It's what it boils down to is that you can't isolate yourself from the body of Christ because we are the body. And if you sever a leg, 
that leg is dead, right? It's gross. It doesn't function anymore. And then the body doesn't function as well without that leg. So not only are you kind of doing yourself a disservice by pulling out, you're also disservice like the whole body because it can't function to its fullest potential without all of the body parts functioning as one. And if you abandon community, it's only a matter of time until you start thinking about abandoning your faith. Because faith comes alive in community. If you find someone in this room that's been in a small group, an active, a a healthy small group, they'll tell you there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. So do not give up meeting together as so many are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see that day approaching. So get together, join together with other people and encourage them. Encourage them when life gets hard. Encourage them when life is going really well, when they close on that new house, when they get that promotion. Celebrate with them, but console them. Bear each other's burdens when things aren't going as planned, as, as they don't go as well as they hope to. And I know that this is, this is so hard, and, and you know that I'm going to push small groups because that's I'm the small groups guy here, and that's what I'm going to push. And I know that school's starting back up, And I know my kids started on Thursday. Why that's a good idea to start on a Thursday, I don't know. But they started Thursday and sports are starting back up. Kids have soccer games. If if your kid travels on soccer or any of these sports, they'll have three, four, five games a weekend. I understand that. I've got three kids. I work full time. I volunteer here a, a bunch of hours a week. I run a small business now. Like there's all this stuff going on. So I know what busy looks like. I know you're super busy. I know you don't have time to hit the gym and hit the treadmill. I know you don't have time to join a small group, but I think it's time that we made time. Because here's what I know, okay? As as someone who's looking out towards my kids leaving the house, here's something that I firmly believe, and I don't think that this is the popular opinion, and that's fine because Jim's the one that preaches every week, so I'm allowed to say the things like this, but I believe that when my child or my children are about 18 or 19 and they're getting ready to move out, that I'm not going to wish they played more sports. I'm just not. I'm not going to wish they made one more practice. I'm not going to wish that they were involved in one more activity. I'm not going to wish that I spent more weekends traveling and doing all this stuff or, or going to dance recitals. And, and I love all that. My kids do all of that. But here's the thing is that when my kids are leaving the house, I, want to have to, I don't want to have to worry. Did I do enough to help them form a relationship with Jesus? Did I do enough that they would choose on their own to be a follower of Jesus? Did I model a life that says that God is number one, if family is number two, and then everything else comes after that. Am I modeling that for my kids? I don't want to have to worry about that when they're 17 or 18 years old. I want to worry about that now, when they're three, when they're six, when they're nine. Because here's what I believe, and I hear this excuse all the time. I've used it as well, is that you know, so many times life gets crazy and you think, ah, like, we're just going to skip church today because we need a family day. Like, our family just needs a day. But here's what I believe, and this might not be what you believe, but I believe that the best thing that you can do is to have your family and have a family day at church. Because I believe that the best thing you can do for your child is set them up with a firm foundation of Jesus 
to have him, them, him or her believe that God is number one in their life, not everything else. We can always chase dreams. There's dreams that come upon dreams and we can chase all of those. But I think we need to model a life of community with people and a life following after Jesus. So I wanna leave you with three questions before we get to the end here. Three questions. The first one is this. Is anyone outside of family spurring you on to live out your faith? Do you have someone who has access into your life other than your spouse, other than maybe your mom or your mother-in-law or your dad? Is there someone other than immediate family that's spurring you on to live out your faith, encouraging you, keeping you accountable? Have you given up meeting together? Maybe you're in this phase right now where things have happened and you've kind of said, like, I have to take a break. I need some time. Have you given up meeting together? Have you ever met together? Every time they talk about small groups, do you kind of slowly creep out the back because you don't want to go to so-and-so's house and you don't like to eat food that other people prepare? And, or maybe you don't want to have anyone over to your house because it's not clean and your kids are a wreck when you go to other people's houses. I know all of those things. I have three kids. They're wild, right? Like, I get it. Have you ever met together? Have you given it a shot? Because here's what we want to do today. I have seven minutes of your guys' time before you leave. And I finished a little early on purpose. If you have a smartphone, I'd like you to take it out. If you have one. Some of you have been checking Facebook while I've been speaking. It's cool. I noticed. Okay. Someone fell asleep first service. I noticed that too. Okay. But if you pull out your phone and you go to this website, journeymain.com slash group link, what I want you to do is I want you to go to that website right now and there's a button on the bottom that says find my group. And I want you to click that and there's a form that you can fill out. And this is what you're signing up for because we're all open here. We want to make sure you understand is that we want every single person to join a small group. Every person. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. We want you to be in a small group. We don't we don't like compare numbers with other churches. We don't say like, hey, we pulled in this much for tithe. What we compare, like the thing that we're the most concerned about is what's the percentage of people that come on Sunday that are in a group? Because we believe that circles are way better than rows. If we had 300 people in small groups, but only 100 people were showing up on Sundays, like we're okay with that to a point. We'd want to know why you're not coming at all, but we want people to be in small groups. Like it's that important for us. So what you're signing up for is you're going to put your name. You're going to put like what nights of the week you can do. There's, you can pick multiple nights because we'll find the group that best serves you. Your age, the stage of life that you're in, because we believe that it's good to have people in the same stage of life so they know the struggles you're going through. Um, I was in a small group once where it was just like all over the map on ages and it was just awkward. It was just weird. And so we want to make sure that you're in a group that's perfect for you. So it, it put if you have kids, put uh, your age group, if you're single, if you're ready to mingle, if you're you know, married, if your kids have moved out, if you're whatever stage of life you're in, we want to find a group that's going to match where you're at and make it the best group possible. And so what happens when you sign up for this is this. We're asking you to commit to four weeks. That's it. Not a year, not two years. You're not giving your life away. You're firstborn. We want four weeks, okay? 
So the first week will be on the 29th of September. We're having group link. It's going to be an event here at the church. I'm pretty sure it's at 530. And at that event, you're going to meet your small group. We're going to assign people to small groups. We've got a great algorithm that we're going to use to kind of make sure that people are in a good group. And then you're going to meet your group that night on the 29th at 530. We'll have some desserts, some refreshments. It'd be great. And you're going to have kind of your first small group meeting at that uh, event. Then after that, we're going to ask you to have three more. Meet in someone's home, the leader of your group's home, for three more uh, small group meetings. And then at that point, your group's going to decide, hey, like, are we going to get married? Like, is this going to be a group? You're not really getting married, but is this group going to keep going? And you have the opportunity to say, you know what? This group's weird. I don't want to be in it anymore. And I'm, I'm out. And we'll try to find you a new group. But we want you to commit to four weeks. Every single person here can do four weeks. Our small group's been going for like two years, and we're looking at kind of splitting up a little bit, and it's been really hard for some people because no one wants to stop meeting when you've got a really good group. So we want to find you guys that group. We want community. We want to help you guys live your best life, and we believe that that is lived in a small group kind of community with other believers. So check out that website. It'll be up for the next four weeks. And then the 29th, we're going to have group link. If you don't have a smartphone, we have iPads in the back with this all booted up, ready for you to fill out the form. And we would love, love, love to have you guys sign up. So with that, let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for just this opportunity to get together, God. We pray for all the people that are signing up for small groups, all the people that are thinking about signing up for small groups, and all the people that don't want anything to do with small groups, that you would just impress upon people's hearts the importance of community, of allowing people access to their life. I pray um, for a great Labor Day tomorrow. I pray that people will just uh, find some relaxation and figure out how to put you first in their life, God, and pray that small groups will be a part of that. In your name we pray. Amen.